0: To *Descent* Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Hey, Sarah. I'm Michelle. And welcome to episode 145 of Belabored. We are talking in this episode to organizer and writer Sean Richmond about the state of labor and what unions can do to protect themselves and move forward under Trump. But first, the news. Across the industrialized world, you can expect that if you're a worker and you just had a baby or are caring for a desperately ill loved one at home or suffer a medical crisis, you can get time off of your job. And indeed, the law actually protects your right to paid leave, but the U.S. stands alone in not providing workers any protections for a single day of paid leave. So this year, the Family Medical Leave Act turns 25 years old, and it's showing its age. This is the Clinton-era law that protects your right to a few weeks of unpaid leave from work uh, to deal with medical circumstances or some sort of family medical emergency or need. Though many workers do qualify for limited unpaid family leave thanks to this and other laws, the process for qualifying for it is restricted and highly bureaucratic, and currently, just 15% of formerly employed workers have paid leave through an employer-based program. It's critical for closing the gender pay gap that parents are able to take time off to care for their kids without having to suffer a pay penalty for it. Currently, millions of private sector workers have virtually no legal guarantee of, of paid or unpaid leave. The issue of paid leave has been down on arrival in Washington for years, but increasingly, cities and states are moving ahead of the feds by instituting payroll-based paid leave programs which allow for a nominal tax on your wages, similar to the social security tax that then goes into a fund that later supports income reimbursement for you and other workers taking long-term leave. So you might get about 75% of your normal pay uh, during 12 weeks that you take off to take care of a newborn, for example. It helps me. So far, California, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and most recently New York have instituted statewide paid leave programs, which have supported many, many families over the years. Uh, it's been taken hundreds of thousands of times. And now there's renewed optimism for the proposed Federal Family and Medical Insurance Leave Act. That's the Family Act. It would provide a nationwide family leave program. It would cost about $1.50 deduction from your weekly paycheck, and in return, you'd be able to take time off to care for your family or deal with a personal medical issue while still receiving up to two-thirds of your regular income. And unlike the Family Medical Leave Act, The program would cover all families, including LGBTQ and adoptive parents, and also cover a wider variety of sectors, and even irregularly uh, employed workers or self-employed people. Even the Trump administration these days and the Republicans are proposing their own watered-down paid leave programs, Uh, so things seem to be looking up in Washington for legislation like this. But at a time when we're seeing massive cuts to Medicaid and other social programs, Uh, expanding health protections at work needs much deeper reforms than just the tax breaks and voluntary measures that conservatives typically emphasize. The time to take care of yourself and your family is priceless, and the least your boss could do is make sure that you don't have to pay a penalty at work for taking it.
0: As I'm recording this, teachers across West Virginia are on strike—a statewide strike—despite the state not having collective bargaining rights for those teachers. We will have much more on this next episode, so stay tuned. But last episode, I talked about the strike vote taken by the St. Paul Federation of Teachers in St. Paul, Minnesota, who were preparing for a showdown with administrators and the local government over steadily shrinking school budgets and other working conditions. Well, it came down to the wire, but they won a settlement that includes restorative practices in schools, guaranteed recess, new English language learner teachers and special education support, class size caps, opt-outs for standardized testing, and most importantly, a joint agreement with the district to seek additional tax funding and other funding sources to fund programs to make the district more equitable. I talk with St. Paul Federation of Teachers President Nick Faber about their win and how it
2: happened. So we actually, with our group of parents and community members and, and educators members, we created this team called our Tiger Team, which stood for Teaching and Inquiring into Greed, Equity, and Racism. Uh-huh. And that team actually took on just some some small corporate actions, right? So we did anything from taking a few of our members and parents to a place where Richard Davis from U.S. Bank was speaking for a chamber event and getting a table for that. Right up front and actually during the Q&A saying, you know, a Q&A after he had spent the most of the time speaking about how he had leveraged millions and millions of private dollars to bring the Super Bowl to town. So to actually get up after that and say, look, you're a powerful dude. You can leverage millions and millions of dollars to bring a game to town that most of our kids aren't going to be able to see. How about using that same power to sit down at the table with us and figure out how we can leverage millions of dollars for St. Paul public schools and the schools that St. Paul children deserve. And he agreed to meet with us publicly right there. We got him on camera. And then we got the um, the wild goose chase of never ending being passed from secretary to secretary and right. never actually ending up sitting down with Richard Davis, but did sit down with three members of U.S. Bank and three of our members to actually talk about what this might look like. And we know, and partially why we're asking you as a big business to lobby with us is because we know when you guys go to the Capitol, things get done. Let's push on that together. And until that happens, here's some other ways that you could contribute to St. Paul public schools. and, They said no. They said no very politely, but it's just like any other negotiation, right? Just like our traditional contract negotiation, that was stage one. So now we recoup and we escalate and see Mm -hmm. um, what we get at the next um, time we sit down. I think, you know, having the Super Bowl in town allowed us to work with some other partners that were um, working on similar means um, for their organization. So we were actually collectively able to lift up this nature of this, of this game that was actually like, a big party for rich folks and, and the kind of the gross nature of it and to, to highlight that these corporations that are part of the host committee can do so much more for not only our schools but for our communities. And and that was that was really powerful to be able to support each other in that nature. So and especially you know on the 29th, which was kind of the launch of the week prior to the Super Bowl, we kicked off a rally downtown with our other you know, Super Bowl partners, you know, a decent sized rally and then Marched over to the XL where Energy Center, where you know St. Paul and the Super Bowls in Minneapolis, they were having NFL night or something like that. And, you know, essentially took the streets and, and showed that we can do that. We can do that with our partners um, and just kind of flexing some of our power a little bit. And with our new mayor in town, although we have a really good relationship with him, we just want him to know the context of where we're at here. We will strike right. and we can put three or four hundred people on the street in the middle of the night. On Monday night in downtown St. Paul, right in the middle of the winter when it's really cold. Yeah. So and and this is interesting too because you know this is the third campaign that we've been we've been working with community and we've been working with parents and involving them in our campaign in creative ways and it's really dug in deep with mm-hmm. issues that are directly related to kids, right? Yeah. And not so focused on our wages and benefits. Well, now all of a sudden we're getting in, in mainstream press some analysis of that, not right. deep analysis. But it's really interesting. And and also our school board is starting to to raise this as well. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not really fair to make policy decisions in a contract negotiations. like that should be an open process and this and that. And, and essentially just challenging the whole idea of bargaining for the common good. It's another just really frustrating place for us as, as a union and try to mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to message and work with this because it seems like you have this narrative of, Free teachers and teachers' union that just fights for wages and benefits. And when you do something different, then they tell you, no, you're supposed to stay in your lane and just only bargain for wages and benefits. Right. So that we can put you in that spot and show you as selfish so we can put you out of commission, essentially. And we're not going to fall on that. We're going to decide what our lane looks like. That
0: was Nick Faber of the St. Paul Federation of Teachers.
1: Now, at a time when he's weighed down by scandals and facing pressure on immigration and gun control... President Trump has once again tried to distract us by dangling before us the shiny idea of infrastructure. He rolled out a rather anemic 50-page plan that amounts to little more than a massive privatization agenda, but this was supposed to fulfill his campaign trail promise to plow billions and trillions of federal dollars into a gargantuan infrastructure plan that was going to give us jobs, jobs, jobs. This basically relies heavily on corporate funding and forces states to shoulder much of the burden. And states, uh, as you may well know, are pretty much broke right now, so that won't be happening. But since we're talking in dreamland right now, uh, here's how Trump's plan would look. Um, He basically wants corporations to subcontract like mad with the government under highly unregulated programs for probably a lot of boondoggles that are paid for on the public dime. The deals will be large, up with tax breaks, and rather than government investments for projects that would actually serve community needs, you're more likely to just get a lot of big corporate investments. This development is not tied to meaningful targets for equitable family-sustaining jobs or high-road labor standards to ensure decent benefits and working conditions. In fact, the plan specifically seeks to dismantle existing labor mandates in federal contracting law, such as using union labor. Watchdog Group in the Public Interest notes that this would effectively, quote, eliminate the program requirement that participants utilize existing union staff. So that means goodbye organized labor. Community advocacy groups say Trump's plan isn't just inadequate. It's designed to cheat working class communities out of the jobs they need and the public benefits they deserve. As he wrote in The Nation, uh, quoting Partnership for Working Families, Trump's blatantly pro-privatization program offers, quote, No meaningful investment in housing, transportation, clean water, and quality schools, which is the kind of infrastructure investment that would have the broadest positive effect on working families. The thing that would have the broadest positive effect on corporations, of course, would be to loosen regulations on, for instance, moving out-of-state workers into project regions so that they could get around local hiring mandates. There's virtually nothing in the plan to provide needed job training, or to match jobs with communities suffering from high unemployment rates. Now, of course, states and communities are not lacking for innovative project ideas. In fact, in 2017 alone, 90% 90% of local ballot initiatives for transportation investments were actually greenlit by voters by referendum. But Trump doesn't seem interested in investing in those existing projects or ideas that people themselves actually came up with because their communities need them. Instead, he just greenlight more white elephants for corporate contractors paid for on the public's time.
0: In preparation for the Janus case, about which much more later in today's episode, Oregon public workers decided to put their state on notice. Sarah Campos of Salem, Oregon is a public health worker, an officer on various levels within SEIU Local 503, and she was part of that action and joined me to talk about the work she and her union are doing to prepare for the potential of Janice.
3: We, um, dropped a banner at the state capitol in Oregon, in Salem, mm-hmm. Oregon, to, to let people know about the upcoming Supreme Court decision. The banner, there were two banners, Um one of them said, uh, 226, hashtag We Rise, and then the second banner said, Working Class Strikes Back. We chose to do the banner on Wednesday. Valentine's Day, which also happens to be Oregon's birthday, Oregon turned 159 years old, the Supreme Court case that's going to be heard on February 26th, which would make uh, fair share payers have the option to not pay those fees, um, could be potentially pretty devastating to to public sector unions. And we wanted to drop the banner to let um, wealthy interests and CEOs and the people trying to take us down. That we're not gonna. We're not gonna stand by and let them dismantle our union. We know that working people are under attack in this country. We know that, that um, targeting unions is just one way that the rich and powerful people are choosing to attack the working class. Um, there have been many Supreme Court cases or a few Supreme Court cases um, targeting unions specifically and I think that we all understand that even if um, the Janus case is found in, in the favor of unions, it's not going to be mm-hmm. the last attempt, they'll, they'll, they'll just keep coming. Um, I went to a training a couple of years ago and the, the point that was made was that unions is one of, if not the last group of people with money that can fight against anti-worker efforts and that's mm-hmm. why they want to dismantle us so bad because we're the only group left that can fight for working people. And I think that's why they're coming after us. And our our union here in Oregon has been working for years to prepare for these decisions, really trying to show you members the value of, the value of being a union member and what the difference it can make in their life. I I think Mm -hmm. the uh, Harris v. Quinn decision here in Oregon, at least, while it it should have been devastating, it was actually the opposite. We still Mm -hmm. have a large percentage of our home care workers as members and home care workers as as a trade, have the highest average contribution to our PAC than any of the mm-hmm. other sectors that 503 represents. And I think that's really, yeah. really encouraging. It's clear yeah. that those workers didn't let the uh, anti-union decision affect their desire to be in their union, and they're stronger than yeah. ever. And I really, really am optimistic that that pattern will continue uh, for public sector workers, regardless of the Janus decision. But yeah. just for me and my local, in, in my office, I'm telling my coworkers and my fellow brothers and sisters that how much the union means to me and why I'm choosing to be a member regardless of the decision and why I think um, they should also continue to be members. It's more than just bargaining contracts. It's members who come to me with a vacation request that got denied, or it's um, a member that needs help just having a, a conversation with their supervisor. As a union steward, I can go in there and I can just help facilitate a conversation. Most of the union work I do is not filing grievance, yeah. really just um, opening up lines of communication. And I try and illustrate that to, to members and say, like, this is the value of our union. We, it gives us a voice with our, our employer. It's more than just paid leave and retirement. It's really just being able to advocate for ourselves. We definitely want everyone, want, want the people trying to take us down to know that we're not going to, we're not going to stand by. I mean, we, we workers are going to strike back. We're going to be on, on the offense and advocate for ourselves and, and we're ready for them on February 26th and, and beyond that.
0: That was Sarah Campos of SEIU 503. All right. We are here this week with veteran labor organizer, strategist and writer Sean Richman, who, among other things, reviewed my book for In These Times um, and has also been writing a lot of pieces that we find very interesting lately about the broad direction of the labor movement. So we are going to talk about all of those
1: directions of the labor movement today. So, Sean, you have written a lot recently on uh, labor uh, in the age of Trump, and you propose the idea that's been kicking around in labor circles for a while about um, possible pro-labor legislation being advanced in Washington. Can you discuss some of what you have in mind and what it might look like on the ground?
4: Yeah, so it's an interesting thing that I kind of stumbled upon. It's the difference between like getting published in Vox and getting published in, in These Times. When you get published in Vox, you have suddenly, you know, the staff of a very prominent progressive U.S. senator reaching out to you, and and they've been casting a very wide net. I'm not, am not sure. Not to knock In These Times or anything. They're, <laughs> no, they're, they're great, and they have also, you know, uh, well read, and 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 you can have influence there too, um, but you don't tend to get the the senators' staff uh, calling you up. And um, what seems to be happening is exactly what you would hope is happening, that at least – the progressives in the Senate yeah. had an oh shit moment um, about a year ago.
0: <laughs> Seems like a good time to have done that.
4: Yeah. <laughs> only 30, 40 years too late.
0: Well, you
4: know. So it's, it's <laughs> you know, and so there's a recognition of like, we have to do things for workers fast and we need to do things that will help unions grow fast so that we don't keep losing elections to fascists. And so they're casting about for ideas and, you know, weren't getting such great ideas from Washington sources. And so, you know, I pitched them on a couple of things. You know, I talked about, look, you know, we have to fix the National Labor Relations Act. We need a very comprehensive fix of that, that basically involves taking out the worst parts from Taft-Hartley, putting in some fines, stuff like that. There's also a whole host of sort of uh, just general workers protections that are outside of collective bargaining. You know, the, the forced arbitration stuff, the misclassification stuff, and whether that's all separate bills or one big bill. There's a need for that. But then there were the two things that I have been, uh, three things really, that I have been um, advocating for in these private conversations. One is um, changing the legal standard of employment from at will to just cause, uh, which would mean that workers can't be fired unless it's for a good performance-related reason. So you can't, you can't be fired just because like you've refused to you know, pick up your boss's dry cleaning and that's not a part of your job description. And another thing that I've been pitching is sort of looking at um, New York City's empowerment law. We need something like that nationwide. There are millions of workers who want to join a union right now. And unless there's a contract in place, their, the, their ability to join and to pay dues is, is very tricky. Through unions that are collecting dues through uh credit card authorization, through you know, avoided check. And it's a tremendous amount of work for not a lot of revenue. Uh, the turnover on those is actually tremendous, even for, you know, teachers. Uh checks bounce, credit cards, you know, get frozen. And you know, when we were doing this uh, in, in in the charter schools in New Orleans when when my organizers and I were doing it, I forget the numbers exactly. I was at the AFT then. You'd sign up five hundred members. For a net gain of 200. Sure. Right. So you're just sort of chasing your tail. So the idea of giving unions and other nonprofits and worker centers access to voluntary pay, payroll contributions from workers, um, that, that it's, it's an important part of rethinking how unions organize. Without that kind of access, there's a revenue gap. There's a revenue problem. And then, you know, the the third thing is we need, in addition to the workplace-based contract unionism, we need a framework that lets worker advocates have access to all the workers in the entire industry all at once, because the structure right now really is a trap when it's based on the employer, because um, there's every incentive in the world for employers to subcontract, to Shift work overseas, uh, for new you know Ubers to pop up you know and compete on a non-union basis. So so they need to be something that you know sets standards on an industrial level. We want a fifteen dollars minimum wage as a floor, right? But you know for there there are industries where the minimum wage should be something like forty, and to set it at forty and to set standards on like for the education, there there should be a standard of any school must offer some form of parental leave. Make that a standard and you know and, and and and, sort of take the issue out of collective bargaining, and the interesting thing that I noticed after this conversation is um, all of the ideas were were of an interest, and at the time i was uh, i still sort of them, I was having these sort of fundraising conversations about maybe we can take uh, labor 's Bill of rights and turn it into some sort of campaign, mm-hmm. and so in the course of uh, having conversations with I'm I'm learning all this lingo now in this fundraising world. In the course of having conversations with validators, um, <laughs> okay,
0: what's a validator? A va- a va- I thought we were validators.
4: <laughs> you are validators. I mean, uh, but validators are, are other public intellectuals, you mm-hmm. know, professors, folks at that's yes, So we are validators, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> to say like, no, these ideas are good. Yeah. So, in the course of having those conversations, I found out that that. Everybody's had very similar conversations with this Mm -hmm. senator's office, Uh, and not just similar in in terms of they're picking their brains, but there's actually – um, it's it, it, almost an emerging consensus of like, yeah, these are the things we have to do. These have to be a part of of yeah. the package of of labor reforms. It can't just be let's tinker with the NLRB and think that we're somehow going to magically get back to thirty three percent density and non union employers are going to match the union standards. That that that's you know oh. that, that NLRB and contract unionism is very very important and and shouldn't go away. But we need we need more. So that was interesting. And then, you know, a couple really. Weeks after, very short weeks after the Senate Democrats introduced their their better deal labor reform bill, which is essentially repealing Taft-Hartley. So what that tells me is that repealing Taft-Hartley is now the centrist compromise within the Senate Democrats, Um, that it was the it was the easiest of of the the bills to sort of get everybody to say, like, yeah, that should be our official position right now and right now being. It doesn't have a, you know, it doesn't have a chance of passing. So there's a possibility also now, uh, particularly until November, yeah. that you, you can, for almost any crazy idea, you can get somebody to say, yeah, let's turn that into a bill. Yeah. And 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 so you can, you, you it's an opportunity to float these sort of trial balloons, you know, does it remain on the agenda if the Democrats retake Congress and, and, and the White House? Um, I don't know. Does it maybe start some conversations about moving something like just cause mm-hmm. as a state level uh, bill or even a ballot initiative, perhaps? So it, it is an opportunity in a way that, uh, you know, maybe not everybody sees that as an opportunity. Like, yeah, a bunch of dead letter uh, uh, bills doesn't seem like a win, but there's been such a lack of formally proposed big ideas for how to restore the power of workers and the power of unions yeah. that if. This is a great time to, you know, get these ideas out there.
0: We were talking to Rachel Cohen a couple of weeks ago on the podcast about the piece that she wrote for The Intercept about this, you know, what sort of stewing is going on in D.C. that talked about the failure of EFCA, the failure of the Humphrey Hawkins full employment bill, my favorite failure in American history, <laughs> um, other than What's Reconstruction. A great name,
1: Humphrey Hawkins. Hey, man. Good old Hubert. Hey,
0: um, <laughs> And... um. Yeah, but one of the things that was interesting about that again was that, like, the things that are being proposed by fairly mainstream members of Congress are suddenly, you know, things like repealing Taft-Hartley, as you said, are the centrist compromise. So you've written about this idea of a labor bill of rights, particularly around the idea of free speech. And right now, what we have is free speech for employers. And by that, we mean employer coercion. But free speech is kind of having a weird moment in the political consciousness broadly, not just around labor rights, but like around fascists' rights to give lectures on campus. Um, And so I'm wondering if in the last few months, while we've been watching these really terrible debates happening, how you think that labor could intervene in this moment about free speech? Is there anything that makes this easier or harder in this
4: weird moment? The labor bill of rights is an idea that I started thinking about when Justice Scalia died,
2: mm-hmm.
4: everybody's favorite holiday from a few days ago, um, and it was clear that that the Friedrichs case was was not going to happen, and you know, uh, and it was sort of like this oh shucks moment of like, well, there really was something too injecting First Amendment law into into labor law because the lack of it is a real problem. So there is a foundational, I think, Mistake in how the National Labor Relations Act was written in the first place, and it is actually important and it is actually a big part of why um, the law has gotten perverted over the last 70 years. Worried about the Supreme Court not ruling it unconstitutional, as they were ruling all of the New Deal legislation at the time. the, the constitutionality of it was pegged to the Commerce Clause only, mm-hmm. and this is significant. So workers' rights are rooted in Congress's ability to regulate interstate commerce and that the purpose of the bill is to get us out of the Great Depression by putting more money in workers' pockets, et cetera, et cetera. Um it didn't have to be that way. The AFL, and remember there's the AFL and the CIO at this time, the AFL wanted the law to be rooted in the Thirteenth Amendment. And this is this is important to consider because um we don't tend to think of of unions before the National Labor Relations Act. But unions were were claiming that that they had a First Amendment right to operate for for decades before the New Deal. They were claiming their First Amendment rights in 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 sort of fighting back on these injunctions that judges were routinely putting up against uh, uh, their strikes, and they were also pointing to uh, the Thirteenth Amendment a lot. Um, which it, the key thing about that is, you know, it, does, it doesn't just say slavery; it says slavery or involuntary servitude. Mm-hmm you don't tend to put, you know, extra words in the Constitution for no reason. Those words are, are in there for a reason. And union advocates certainly felt that way. And they felt like that was their clause and that by banding together and forming a union, they were making the terms of of their job less involuntary and that and that the government should support them in doing that. Now, so the problem now is, is this. Almost immediately, employers start resisting the National Labor Relations Act and they start leaning on their First Amendment right, right away. The law actually um, was was a neutrality law. Employers were not supposed to campaign against unionization. They were just supposed to recognize a union and begin bargaining. But the employers resist that and they they go to the Supreme Court and they say, you, the government, can't tell us that we're not allowed to express our views about whether the workers can form a union. And unions are in the court arguing back only that, hey, the law is constitutional because of the Commerce Clause and you're supposed to defer to regulatory authority. That's the argument. Of course we lose. And we've been losing under that framework ever since. And and our rights have been getting um, chipped away. And so what I'm proposing in Labor's Bill of Rights is that we have to change the way that we think about the law that we have constitutional rights that pre-exist the National Labor Relations Act. They might not be acknowledged, but they pre-exist. And what the NLRA does is it regulates those rights, much like election laws regulate our franchise, which is rooted in the Constitution. And just like an election law can go too far in terms of the number of signatures it demands to get a candidate on the ballot or how difficult they make it to register to vote, and therefore become unconstitutional, that that so much of, of what is in labor law now has become really sort of obviously unconstitutional. And it's time for us to start calling it out and and to challenging it uh, with a strategy of actually trying to put these issues into the courts.
1: You've discussed this tension between constitutional rights um and legislation as it exists now and organizing um, as sort of the third. Plank of that, um, and with the former two obviously hanging by a thread, with these um, potentially, you know, very retrograde decisions coming down the Supreme Court.
4: Um, I mean, do we really have to say potentially?
1: Okay, let's just I, <laughs> out of the
4: bag. I I would. It's terrible. I, yeah. I would I would say actually, uh, you know, um, there's, there's a lot of writing now about these yeah. amicus briefs. Yeah. and you know, there's a couple of interesting ones from from. I right mean, libertarians skies. for the win. I, I would have said that it was a it was a ninety five percent certainty yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Now I'd, I'd put it at you know eighty <laughs> percent. So there's a there's a thin chance that they won't because precisely actually precisely what I'm pointing to in Labor's Bill of Rights that um, you know judges have spent really ever since eighteen oh six trying like hell to not give unions First Amendment rights at all. Once you interject here and you say that any interaction. That a union has with the government is speech. Um, you open up the door to the potential for a lot of chaos, um, chaos that we have to create as 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 revenge if nothing else. If they do make this decision, and and so I, you're seeing now some on the right who are seeing as like what are you doing? This is a mistake. This is going to backfire on us. Uh, we, we we can't be sure that we're going to have conservative majorities forever. You're just giving them a roadmap for for how to undo, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we like.
1: Speaking of the Supreme Court, our favorite topic, we have Janice coming up. Given the forces stacked against labor at this moment, where do you think that unions should have been with respect to Janice months or even years ago in terms of preparing for a ruling like this coming down and what can be done on the organizing front, I guess, going forward, um, assuming that the Supreme Court rules unfavorably to brace unions now and to continue mobilizing, you know, in the future and to maintain membership.
4: I actually think unions are having the right response to Janus, um, and the, the, the unions that are going to be most impacted by it, I'd say SEIU, AFSCME, NEA, and AFT, all have internal organizing programs that have been rolling since before Friedrichs, aimed at um, getting member-to-member conversations And actually, if people aren't lying about the numbers, and I don't think they are, um, have actually talked to a substantial percentage of their existing membership. I mean, up over 70 percent, you know, closing in on 100, depending on on the bargaining unit and to get um, agency fee payers to join the union now. So a lot of them. A lot of what exists as agency fee payers are not actually conscious that they're agency fee payers. They, mm-hmm. you know, they just didn't get the, the, the union card in front of them. Are you
1: talking uh, about primarily public sector workers? Yes, this is yeah, public okay. sector.
4: Um, and, and so, you know, the push right now is to is, is that when the decision comes down, you don't want to have this revenue just drop out automatically. That most people are already members, and I think that they've done that. I think that the, the if, if the decision comes down negatively, I I don't think you're going to see a massive drop in membership right away. I think you see a very, actually very slight decline, somewhere around uh, maybe 10%. What's missing here, my uh, criticism when I was still there was that there was too much focus on on the mechanics of just getting a card in front of somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's important, but the real risk of what's coming is what's going to follow, um, that, that these organizations uh, affiliated with the state's policy network, which is mm-hmm. a part of the Coctopus, they are going to do direct mail campaigns to union members glossy trifold pamphlets, the message basically being give yourself a raise. Where they're hoping to have success is places where, you know, the contract maybe hasn't been settled for a while because of austerity budgets or, you know, governors like Bruce Rauner. And so they haven't had a raise for a while. and and, And the message is give yourself a raise, drop your union dues. Now, There are unions where that will have no impact whatsoever. You know, uh, uh, the Chicago Teachers Union could laugh that off. Uh, But in unions where they haven't fundamentally changed the way that members are a part of the the life of the union – um, to places where you know the the union president still is the person who handles most of the bargaining. The bargaining team is ten people. The the union is seen as a building downtown, and so you know if you really want to sow discord, it's very easy to do that when people don't view the union as something that they've helped formulate the demands, they've helped formulate the plans for how are we going to fight and win this. You know because you can you can lose and seen one way those Chicago teachers union contracts are. Concessionary, right? They were they just pushed back on even greater concessionary demands, you know. And those fifty-two schools that got closed, I mean, that was a loss, you know. Um, But the union came out stronger as a result because it was a fight, and that members were a part of designing and and implementing. So more of that is necessary if we're not going to see Janus sort of be the more like the the slow decline that that right to work laws have been. You know, w- wasn't a massive hit. It was actually you know it, it's it's as new hires into the field come in and they don't have a personal connection to the union that that it just sort of atrophies and there's a decline of membership over time.
1: Are there lessons to be imported from that into private sector organizing in terms of? Um, trying to revive, you know, a viable system of, you know, whether it's something mechanical like automatic dues checkoff or just membership drives, and and sort of getting more voluntary participation that way.
4: I think so. The way that I'm describing how a union should operate is is how all unions should should operate, right? And and you know, there's a lot of talk uh, about like bigger bargaining teams. Which, you know, is kind of I think it's kind of funny, like like as if our hurdle to having bigger bargaining teams is that the unions are uncomfortable with the idea. I've seen so many efforts to expand the bargaining team pretty radically uh, face employer resistance where you wind up having weeks of, of bargaining about bargaining. You know, I mean, I was a part of an effort in uh, the Hotel Employees Union in D.C., um, where basically every member came to the table by- before those <laughs> sessions were done, whereas management was used to it being like a 13-member team. Suddenly, we had hundreds of people, we had bleachers, and and there was no real bargaining happening for months, which was part of the design. We were looking for a strike vote. So
0: The thing that was interesting to me to hear about St. Paul was that their bargaining meetings are covered by open meetings law. right? And so they were not only inviting all of the teachers to come but inviting parents. Right. Which I thought was a really really interesting Right, right. Tactic, no, they, right they, to-
4: because because the, the the right wing and 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 you know, I got to say about the right wing, sometimes they they're just They have more money than brains. So they they come up with ideas where they're like, oh, this is really going to hurt them. And it's like, actually, you're just going to make us stronger. So the the, the right wing outfits were going to try to force their way into the bargaining. And they thought they'd reveal, I don't know what, you know, Mary Catherine Ricker smoking a cigar. You know, I don't know what they thought they they would expose. Yeah. Yeah. the
1: and, infamous union boss wearing the fedora <laughs> and, you know, with a huge shadow. And, yeah. and,
4: and, so, and so the union said, well, we're just going to get out ahead of this and we're going to open up the bargaining. And right. really that was the you know that, that was the beginning of, I, I would say, uh, a lot of the sort of the bargaining for the common good mm-hmm. uh, strategy, which is now in multiple states and right. it's about aligning contracts and aligning community demands. And it's, it is it um, is uh, next to Fight for 15, I'd say it's the smartest mm-hmm. uh, union campaign going right now in terms of trying to change some dynamics and, 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 you know, make a breakthrough.
1: Going back to this idea of using legislation um, and using legal mechanisms to both set a floor for labor rights as well as to assert greater rights, um, where do you see potentially some of the drawbacks or pitfalls of that strategy um, with respect to more traditional forms of conventional labor organizing or grassroots approaches um, that you have worked with over the years?
4: It's not like an either or, right? We're not going to get uh, 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 legal labor reform, absent some form of crisis and and a crisis that we create, that part is absolutely uh, true. I I'm just trying to call some attention to let's actually have a plan for what we want to win. Yeah. Because if tw- if if 20 million workers sat down on the job tomorrow, will we get EFGA? You know. I mean, now we have the better deal. That's good. But that, like, it's frustrating when like you see our you know our our allies. You know, get an op ed in like a major newspaper or write a book about, you know, why we have to restore the power of unions. And then when it gets to, you know, the, the, well, how do we do this section in the end? Because there has been no, you know, the last public demand was card check. That's what's in everybody's head. And so it's like, well, so card check. You know it's like well first of all nobody wants that anymore that i mean like EFCA is 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 an orphan it's over so what do we want and and so part of labor's bill of rights is just like let's let's be talking about Restoring our rights. It's it's, a, its an idea that people can understand. You know, it, it it starts a conversation about what you mean labor doesn't have rights and like know, fundamentally, actually, we don't have rights. You know, you could be fired for saying a disloyal comment about your employer in the course of protesting your employer's completely disloyal and shitty treatment of you as a worker on Facebook. On Anyway, on a union leaflet, you know, in a, in, in a tweet. I mean, you know, it's crazy. And one of the things that, 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 that unions do and part of what I'm, I'm hoping to sort of trigger a conversation is um, when it comes to legal strategies um, uh, for too long, I think the conversation ends at the general counsel's office in D.C. at most unions. Um, And the fights between union organizing directors and general councils are legendary and ubiquitous. It's just a natural rivalry. But the general councils can't be the last word anymore because that is just a strategy of trying to preserve and trying to slow the decline. And we have these really existential threats that we have to be willing to, to take more risks. But the other thing that we do besides that is we we tend to suffer in silence in a very strange way. It's almost like this macho thing um, where – Oh, you it's know,
0: totally a macho thing. Yeah, it, it's, like, you know, it's totally a macho Well, the boss can thing. do
4: that. The boss can do that. We just have to be better at organizing because the boss can do fucked up shitty things, you know. And, you know, so I'm writing this stuff and I get into the, these venues. And so I, I watch like Facebook threads or comment threads where people are like, I had no idea that employers could do that. No wonder unions are, are are on the decline. So like let's let's make some noise about how unfairly unions are treated versus how corporations are treated yeah. under the labor law regime right now.
1: Is Keith Ellison he advanced um labor bill of rights
4: legislation um, a couple of years back but right.
1: um, yeah Uh, Keith Ellison,
4: I would say, is one of um, I was talking about the the Senate a lot, but he's he's one of the Democrats in Washington who um, get gets past platitudes Mm -hmm. and really wants to get into the finer details of how do we do this? How do we bring the unions back? So, I mean, he, he, I think, is going to be a very important player in terms of, of, of actually reforming our labor law system.
0: I want to talk about the New Labor Forum piece that you wrote, I guess, a couple of years ago now on the tensions around new organizing and the, the questions of, you know, where is decision making concentrated and where should resources be allocated? Um, so if you could talk a little bit about these challenges and how maybe um, you see that exacerbated under Trump since when you wrote that article.
4: Yeah. So in the article, what I was pointing to is um, the whole what I call the organizer die uh, uh, era, which is basically from from John Sweeney's election through two years ago, I guess, um, when the emphasis was on, you know, let's let's put as much resources into new organizing as possible. You should be putting 20 percent of their resources into organizing. We should pick big strategic targets and run you know comprehensive campaigns. And, you know, 10 years of that and we have, you know, this major split in the labor movement, you know, ostensibly over those kinds of issues. Um, And then the whole thing kind of peters out um, that there aren't a lot of unions that are doing uh, big campaigns um, or or much organizing at all besides a a boutique nature, which is a problem. But, you know, look, we split the labor movement over these kinds of questions. And there's there's twin tensions. There's a tension between local unions. And, and the international unions, um, that the international unions are the ones who feel the decline in union membership more acutely. And so they're the ones that are driving the organizing. Plus, they, they're the ones who can sort of pull together more resources to actually be the driver on it. Whereas locals, um, don't feel it as acutely, you know. It's it's a few members here and there for them. For for, for the international, it's you know a hundred members at a thousand locals, and that's a lot of people all of a sudden. Um, and that you know the, the imperative is bringing back good contracts for your members and 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 winning re-election for yourself. That's an institutional conflict that that was never truly addressed with. Um, and what you had was too much um, sort of power fights, or even uh, at the worst of it, dishonest dealing. The Unite Here International, before the divorce, was like signing secret deals with, you know, uh, uh, hotel chains that gave them neutrality in some places, but also signing away, you know, organizing rights for locals without even telling them. And that's actually what triggered the divorce. In broad stroke, you don't sign away organizing turf, you know, in in New York City as as the hotel employees union. That's that's one of your big locals. You don't do it in Las Vegas. You don't do it in New York. Maybe you could do it someplace else. Um, but 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 that's just not the way to operate. That 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 really there should have been you know much more open honesty and the difficult work of consensus you know so that you're actually rather than than browbeating your locals to go along with you or to go along with your organizing priorities and targets you know you're actually coming up with a plan together that has that has um real buy-in and then the other tensions i said twin tension the other one is just the tension between you know uh, servicing representing your your existing members and and organizing new members it's it, it is very real and so in the era of trump i would say what exacerbates it is um Attacks on unions force unions to turn inside and focus more on organizing their existing members. Uh, And that's why they do them, right? That's why they do things like Janus. Um, Even if we don't lose a lot of members, we're going to spend a hell of a lot of resources, staff resources, activist energy resources, on keeping our existing members in the union. Uh, And that's just less energy that we can focus on on growing the union. Uh, And that's why they do it.
0: Yeah. So... To wrap up, because we're kind of, we could keep talking for approximately three years, but I wanted to go back to the discussion you had with Bill Fletcher and in these times about socialists and the labor movement, because I think that connects to what you just said. We have a lot of people who are suddenly discovering sort of socialist class politics, but don't really know anything about the existing labor movement. And you mentioned in that piece that maybe people can actually th- learn to think of themselves as workers. And I'd love for you to expand on that and people's sort of labor orientation on the left.
4: Yeah. I mean, one of the real opportunities, uh, you know, uh, I'm jealous that this is happening now that I'm not an organizing director, <laughs> that, that there's, you know, uh, uh, thousands, maybe perhaps hundreds of thousands of people who consider themselves socialists. That's a great pool of, 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 of potential salts. Um, and, and salting is, is essential to, to organizing, you know, having an, having an inside organizer, somebody on the job who is committed to organizing a union and is doing sort of the long-term, you know, uh, uh. Relationship work with their coworkers and 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 getting them around the idea of okay we can do this we can form an organizing committee. We're uh, talking
1: about like card carrying members of the DSA and things like of that nature.
4: Right? That's yes, I mean that's I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of that as as a pool of people that I would be tapping into that. Now that I'm not in in that role, I would say. That if that's all we do with DSA is like, you know, we get a bunch of DSA members to take front desk jobs at a bunch of hotels. If that's all that we do with it, that is a waste of the opportunity. Yeah. So one of the many challenges of 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 unions as institutions organizing is it's this resource question yeah. and it's, it's where you put your resources out, right? And so, you know, a smart uh union, you know, organizing program can preserve or maybe increase density in a region, in an industry, right? Mm-hmm. And but what we need to keep the fascists out of power is we need, you know, we need we need thousands, hundreds of thousands of of of, of new unions, new union members getting formed right away, and that requires a degree of worker self organizing, right? Uh, and it's also going to de- require a degree of 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 thinking through. Uh, new strategies, innovative strategies. Uh, and that is really the possibility of having all of these people who are, you know, who are socialists, who who know that they should have a union at work, want to have a union at work, but there's no union around that's going to organize them. Right. If you're my days in the restaurant industry. Well, I mean, or, I, mean <laughs> I, I keep talking about like IT. Yeah. Who's the union for information technology workers? I mean there's just no nobody has the resources to do that so those workers have to figure it out for themselves to a certain degree and and so having now these socialist organizations and these networks is important for them having the conversations of well what does that look like and how 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 do those workers you know express power at the workplace and 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 it might it probably is not gearing up for an NLRB election and then bargaining a contract, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, the fact that they are not a union currently means that they are not – they are not restricted by the, the sort of uh, you know this labor law regime that I'm complaining about in labor's bill of rights. Right. They're actually pretty free to do some some w- whatever they're they're creative enough to think uh, of to do. All those millennials joining unions these, these days, which are forming a, a bit of a, a bump. I've I've saw that. I saw your article on that. Yeah. yeah. No. It, it it absolutely absolutely. Um, but you know their their challenges. How do you join a union? You have to find a place where there a job where there is a union or you have to organize the, the, the union at your job. So, but what can we do, you know, as IT workers at this, you know, whatever, this cubicle farm, what can we do? Today to make our boss's life miserable because we want to win you know uh, uh, you know uh, a longer smoke break I don't know what, whatever the fight of the day is right we need to get back to that kind of of organizing and uh, 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 you know to supplement what unions do and so that's that's the biggest opportunity I think of of this this sort of new socialist movement
1: answering calls in a robot voice from your cubicle um, has has managed to work as a good strategy to really. Right. piss no, off that, your employer that, just kind of just it's a
0: great work, kind of work to rule tactic, tactic yeah. right yeah. That, that's, yeah. it's a great that's work. that's exactly to what tactic. labor notes said right yeah. The, yeah i still think that you know marshawn lynch did his best to bring back work to rule with his press conference a few years ago with the i'm just here so i don't get fined
4: yeah right um, right, right right we have a real challenge here right yeah. like like we got to bring back the strike that's easier said than done and workers aren't going to engage in protest activity unless they see examples of other workers doing it. So it's yeah. this total chicken and the egg thing. And because formal strikes by, by recognized unions are, are A, rare, and B, so regulated, they're not going to provide good object lessons for, for non-union workers for what they can do yeah. to win the fight of the day. And Fight for 15, I think, is, is another real opportunity mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Um, uh, they are striking, right? Yeah. And it, it they, they are feeling their power. The amazing thing of what could come next is is if they if they start taking some some, some self-action. Because in a mm-hmm. McDonald's store is barely organized chaos on a good day. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know? If a worker has her, her schedule fucked with, yeah. you know, and 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 I asked for Wednesday off because that's my parent teacher conference. Yeah. If the workers just in that moment. Turn the key that turns off the cash register. Turn the key that turns off the fryer. Yeah. They'll win that issue for the day. Yeah. Right. And that can take off like fire. Yeah. So we need to be thinking creatively about those those, those little immediate protests uh, that non-union workers should be doing. To start creating the chaos that we need to to save this country. Well, you know, there were those
0: couple of wildcat strikes over lack of air conditioning. I think the first summer I heard about this, and there may, I'm sure there have been more since the fight for 15 that there have been more wildcats about things that we just didn't hear about. But yeah, there were definitely like walkouts at, like, I think at Dunkin' Donuts in New York City that the air conditioning was out and they were told to
1: like keep frying donuts in. Yeah, right, right, right. And Amazon, yeah. where, Amazon warehouse workers, I think. Workers, was I, think. I mean, after they started having like mass faintings uh, one summer, there was some mobilization around that. They were yeah. Like, um, but hopefully, it doesn't have to get to a point of like a public health crisis to right. uh, to well, trigger that. Well, the next I mean, night. we already
0: have public
1: health crisis. That's an right. Story. So just to to wrap up, I mean, uh, just sort of a. a a general, like, where to now question. Um, y- you've, you've worked as a organizer in unconventional settings, such as charter schools, and, um, you've been observing the fight for 15. Um, and now we have unions and the labor movement confronting new issues in terms of immigration rights. Um, as well as with the Me Too movement, um, some of this upsurge in, you know, advancing ideas of gender justice at work. Given all that's going on around people experimenting with new forms of organizing and 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 new uh, agendas to take up, I mean, where where do you see either of those two issues playing out um, under Trump? Because that is becoming. A real force under, of resistance uh, for what it's worth under, under Trump.
4: I'm, I'm not sure. It will depend on how much workers who care about those issues are going to make them important to their unions. Going back to Labor's Bill of Rights, one of the things I talk about is, is, in terms of a, a First Amendment issue is the scope of bargaining. Um, the courts essentially narrowed what employers must bargain over. There was nothing in the act that, that that said that when it was proposed, and, and so it' narrowed now to you know uh, uh, basically wages hours and and some working conditions um, and that workers want to bargain over much much more um and, and so you know I think that 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 distinction between mandatory and and permissive subjects of bargaining has to be challenged as a as a free speech infringement on our rights and ironically Janus. A, a real roadmap to doing that right because again that that that's an interaction with the government at the bargaining table. The government's saying if, if a union does come to the to the table with with you know proposals on on you know, uh, uh, on, on preventing sexual harassment or, or protecting, you know, uh, workers, you know, who, who don't have uh, papers. The employer can say, we're not going to bargain over that. We're not interested in bargaining over that. And that's it. It, it. It's a dead issue. You don't have any of the recourse that you have to file unfair labor practices that you do with, with a so-called right. mandatory subject.
1: Sadly, the most viable legal defense is to go in the other direction and say, no, we
4: don't do anything political as right. a union. So, unfortunately, well, it, it, that's it, No, it's, it's how much do you want to do bargaining and how much do you want to do bargaining about bargaining? Because if you if you bring an issue to the table that is a permissive subject of bargaining, the employer is going to refuse and then you're bargaining about bargaining um, and you're you're trying to push enough paper across the table to not reach impasse over the, the mandatory issues, which you're always being threatened on and trying to keep the issue that you that you that you care about, you know, on the table. So given that framework, yeah, the easiest thing is to say, you know, we have to like not lose our health care. So we're not going to you know, we're not going to take on that issue that that they have a legal right to refuse to talk to us about. And that was veteran labor
1: organizer and now consultant slash strategist, Sean Richman. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine
0: podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
1: And Now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that where we talk about a piece that we wish we had written, but alas, did not. My pick is Trump Betrays the Bards of Hard Work by Maggie Doherty in the opinion section of New York Times. Now, we all know that Donald isn't the most cosmopolitan or intellectual of presidents, He was elected, after all, as a so-called populist, the gold-plated everyman who commands the respect of the masses, so much so that he actually shuns all the emblems of the effete liberal elite culture, including its artistic creations. Maggie Doherty looked at the real meaning of the masses through the lens of art exploring how Trump's recent move to slash the budget for the National Endowment for the Arts and other such programs is betraying the everyman Trump claims to champion. Trump's latest budget proposal would eliminate the Institute of Museum and Library Services, virtually wipe out the budget of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, all while defunding the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities by about 80%. Trump is repeating a long-standing pattern of conservatives, of course, by attempting to devastate funding for the arts. It reflects the suspicion that the art world is subversive, transgressive, and against family values. Of course, that might be true, but some of our greatest artworks are. Trump has amped up the anti-intellectual rhetoric into overdrive by presenting the arts and sciences as not only worthless but insultingly elitist to the everyday ordinary American. Doherty writes, quote, The truth is, the National Endowment for the Arts is the exact opposite. It amplifies the voices of Americans who aren't the so-called coastal elite, or the aristocratic or the advantaged. It seeks to diversify the stories we tell and the lives we see. This diversity can take many forms. It can be seen in the racial difference and regional difference in terms of gender and in terms of class." Having researched the grantees of federal arts funding, I know myself that I've been surprised at the sheer range and scope of the projects they sponsor. They range from art installations on the southwestern plains to sustainable design projects in east coast cities to seed money grants to help inspire homegrown art communities in rural towns in upstate New York. It shows that many of the great artists in American history actually launched their careers with modest federal arts grants going back to the days of the New Deal, the Federal Writers Project, and the Federal Theater Project, uh, all of these grants helped inspire some of the most monumental works, and they've been anything but insular and elitist. They've been great works of art for the masses, and without dumbing anything down, they uplifted the spirit of people who had been beaten down by economic hardship and the rising inequality of the Industrial Age. And most importantly, the people who experienced art saw themselves reflected in the works and they became national fora for people to find a common experience, find common ground, and to dialogue with each other. Doherty continues, Quote, Over the last fifty years, through creative writing fellowships alone, the endowment funded the work of Tilly Olson, who wrote stories about the deep fatigue of working class mothers, Philip Levine, a Detroit born poet and the Whitman of the industrial heartland, Ernest Gaines, the descendant of sharecroppers who wrote fiction about rural Louisiana, and Bobby Ann Mason a short story writer from rural Kentucky who, along with Carver, brought dirty realism into vogue, a working-class counterpoint to the fictional worlds populated by rich liberal elites. Rich liberal elites like our president. Trump thinks he's channeling the ordinary working man and his trumped-up persona, It's Trump who dehumanizes and insults everyday Americans of Main Street by broadcasting an image of the vulgar that undermines our sense of common humanity. He divides the working class with his demagoguery. Art by contrast can be the antidote to Trump's narrow-minded politics, which is why he and other reactionaries try so hard to stamp art out. But fear not, Trump might hold the purse strings this time around and he can cut the federal budget all he wants. It won't cut our imaginations off. It won't stop us from telling our own stories. And in fact, as such an oppositional force, he's giving us a new chapter to write in our long history of grassroots radicalism. And that is what's at once beautiful and unmistakably ordinary about the American people. We've discussed on this podcast before the
0: way that the workday can extend in all sorts of unexpected and uncompensated ways. Way back in episode 31, we talked about a Supreme Court case that looked into the time steelworkers spend getting their protective gear on as working time. And we've certainly talked about how our little friendly digital devices mean that we're expected to be always on the job. The piece I'm arguing about this week is from the New York Times a couple weeks back, and it explores the way that commuting can drag out the workday, particularly for healthcare workers and particularly with New York City's crumbling subway system. Those of you listening in New York know what I'm talking about. By Winnie Hu, the piece is titled, For Healthcare Workers, The Worst Commutes in New York City. The piece is based on a report from the Center for an Urban Future, which is titled An Unhealthy Commute. The healthcare industry is New York City's largest employer with nearly 500,000 healthcare workers, and most of those jobs are outside of the central hubs in Manhattan around which our public transit system was designed. Nearly one in three major healthcare employers, which include hospitals, urgent care centers, nursing homes and doctor's offices are more than eight blocks away from a subway stop. And even when the centers are near transit stops, low pay means that many of the workers are coming to them from the outer boroughs and the outer parts of those outer boroughs. Home health care aides have it the worst, the lowest pay and often the furthest commutes as they spend their days in clients' homes whether or not those homes are remotely convenient. And if we're talking about hospitals being far from public transit, you can imagine the possibilities when you're going to private homes. For them, also, lateness is a particular problem as they are the sole worker upon whose shoulders their client's health and well-being depends. Sitting on the subway for hours with a delay, knowing your client is waiting for you to arrive, is a recipe for stress, which in turn complicates a delicate and difficult job who writes, quote, Delrisa Sewell Henry, a home health aide, was resigned to spending two hours on a bus and three subway trains just to get across Queens to care for a disabled man. But when one train recently stopped for a sick passenger, quote unquote sick passenger, her commute expanded to a mind-boggling three hours and 15 minutes. She was late. To make up the lost time, she stayed longer with her patient instead of picking up her granddaughter from school. She had to enlist a neighbor to do that for $35. Then last week, another train was delayed and she was late again. She makes $13 an hour. When you make $13 an hour and you have to pay rent and buy groceries, you can't afford an Uber, she told who I can barely afford a seven day metro card. This commute adds four hours to her workday, just on a good day, and can add more than six on a bad one. This is, in a very real sense, working time. It's time out of her day that is required in order for her to do her job, even though it's unpaid. It's time in which she cannot do anything else except sit and want to tear her hair out on the subway. And it's not as if she has a choice. She lives where she can afford to live and works for clients who need her and request her services. For home health workers who work for an agency, they are set to assignments that can shuffle around in a week, meaning some days the commute is an hour and some days it might be three. Doesn't matter to the agency. Doesn't cost them any, anything to send a worker from Canarsie in Outer Brooklyn to the Bronx or vice versa. But maybe it should. And meanwhile, New York may have a particularly crumbling public transit system, thanks Andrew Cuomo, but it's not the only city where gentrification is pushing low-wage workers to the outskirts or even out of the city entirely, meaning that the longest commutes are regularly going to the people who have the least to show for the work that they do. Even when that work, as Risa Sewell-Henry's does, means someone's life depends on you showing up on time. That is all we have time for today. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Natasha Lewis, to Descent for hosting us, and to all of you whose support allows us to keep doing this show. If you sign up at descentmagazineorg slash belabored-membership to be a sustaining member, you can get your sweet, sweet belabored tote bag. You can also make a one-time donation if that's all you've got. You can find more information about everything we've discussed today, at the Descent website, and you can always email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. If you are a teacher on strike or a public worker preparing for Janice, if you do or don't have family and medical leave, if you have a ridiculously long commute, or if you are an artist depicting the working class, we always want to hear from you. Also, if you are in the Chicago area, we will be doing a live show in Chicago at the Labor Notes Conference in April. So we will have more information as we narrow down details, but uh, looking forward to seeing some of you in person. Solidarity. You've been
2: listening to Descent
0: Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belaboured.